Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. Nate here from Jersey Brew Theology. So back on November 12th, the Jersey chapter joined in on a conversation with Rabbi Mark Katz of Temple Near Tamid in Bloomfield, New Jersey. The evening was hosted by Reverend John Rogers, Associate Minister at First Congregational Church of Montclair. By the way, if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you might remember Reverend John from a couple episodes uh, way back in July 2019, where he talked with us about the Lost Gospels. So if you haven't already, definitely go back and check those episodes out. In tonight's conversation, Rabbi Katz talked about his book, The Heart of Loneliness, How Jewish Wisdom Can Help You Cope and Find Comfort. And we thought this would be a great conversation to share with you. You can find Rabbi Katz's book on Amazon, or if you're trying to avoid sending more money to Jeff Bezos, it's also available on bookshop.org. Anyway, here's the conversation. All right, on this uh, ever-darkening night, this season where the days start to become uh, so much shorter and the night so much longer, and in all that we are struggling with in this season, it's so good to be together, but we light a candle on this night to remind us of the ever-present spirit of God, the wisdom, the enlightenment, the warmth, the presence of the Holy One. Good evening, everyone. It is so good to see all that have gathered this evening. Uh, my name is Reverend John Rogers, and I am very excited to be in conversation this evening with Rabbi Mark Katz of Temple Near Tamid. We will focus on his book, The Heart of Loneliness, and explore how Jewish wisdom can help us find comfort and a path forward. And what a time for this conversation. We are bracing ourselves for the colder weather and hearing more news every day about increased COVID-19 restrictions. This pandemic has intensified the already pervasive sense of loneliness in our society. A few decades ago, novelist Joseph Heller called loneliness the great plague of human existence. And his statement is even truer today. As Rabbi Katz writes in The Heart of Loneliness, there is no easy answers to the problem of loneliness. The world is too complex and the reasons for our isolation too varied for platitudes. But there are four ways we can reach when yearning for connection, out to others, up to God, inward towards ourselves, and back towards ancestors and to tradition. To help illuminate the path from isolation to connection, again, we are so blessed to be joined by Rabbi Mark Katz this evening. Rabbi Katz has been the senior rabbi at Temple Near Tamid since 2018. In addition to his regular clergy duties, he has concentrated on a host of initiatives, including expanding the Israel discourse, enriching adult education, engaging empty nesters, reimagining parent engagement in religious school, pursuing social justice, especially for immigrants, and opening up spiritual avenues during prayer. Rabbi Katz is a graduate of Tufts University and Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute. Before coming to Near Tamed, he spent 10 years working at Congregation Beth Elohim in Park Slope, Brooklyn, where he attained the title Associate Rabbi. Rabbi Katz's book, The Heart of Loneliness, How Jewish Wisdom Can Help You Cope and Find Comfort, was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. When not at Temple Near Tamid, Rabbi Katz is the adjunct professor of Talmud at Hebrew Union College, as well as a judge for the National Jewish Book Awards. Rabbi Katz and his wife, Ayelet, and children, Lev and Amalia, live in Montclair. He can often be found running or on a bike and is always excited to talk to you about what he is reading. Rabbi Katz, I am very excited that you are connecting with our congregation, First Congregational Church in Montclair. We are a progressive, open and affirming Christian church that is a part of the United Church of Christ denomination. Our congregation is full of deep spiritual seekers committed to social justice and strengthening the bonds of community. We are also excited to be joined by members of the New Jersey chapter of Brew Theology tonight which is a space to wrestle with deep questions about life, belief, and big ideas. And what a blessing it is for us all to be together to hear the wisdom of Rabbi Katz. Rabbi Katz and I are going to talk a little bit about the book, The Heart of Loneliness and its relevance today. And then we'd love to hear questions from you. Again, we're gonna keep everyone on mute for the first part 
If you have a question, please type it into the chat box at the bottom of your Zoom screen. During the last part of our program, Reverend Ann will go through the list, unmute you, and you can have a chance to connect with Rabbi Katz. Let's begin. Um, I was telling Rabbi Katz before uh, you all came in how rich and how full of wisdom this book is. I uh, have so many notes from going through. Um, but I guess we'll just jump in with the first question, which is what inspired you to write this book? Thank you. Um, and by the way, I just want to say hello to everybody. Um, um, I see I see a few of my congregants who are on this, which is great. Susan, Judy, it's good to see you. And uh, and Brew Theology, I didn't know that this was being co-sponsored by them. I did a session once at Brew Theology that, uh, that was great. It was like at a bar like off of Route 46 or something like that. Um, and it was, it was, so if you don't go, it's like, it's a very cool group. Um, so what, what, why did I write the book? So basically um, I kind of fell into this. Um, it was originally a sermon and, uh, and I, they always say that you're supposed to write the sermon that you need to hear. And so this book was the sermon that I needed to hear at the time. So I'm very happily married. I have two kids. I love my life, right? I was married before my um, current and final wife, I yell it. Um, and, um, and my marriage fell apart um, for, for different reasons. And I was basically left um, in this kind of in-between period while the divorce was going on. It was right before Rosh Hashanah. So I needed a topic for my Yom Kippur sermon. Um, and there was, I was feeling probably the most lonely that I had ever felt in my whole life. Um, now we can talk about what exactly were the mechanisms that made me feel lonely. And I'll just tease the idea that it was really because um, I had this secret that I was holding onto my shoulders, right? That I was getting divorced and people were coming up to me and they were asking me these really nice questions, but they weren't the questions that I wanted to talk about. I wanted somebody to say, how are you doing? I hear your life is falling apart, but nobody knew that it was a secret. So everybody was saying to me like, so what melodies are you picking for the high holidays? Or like, are you excited about having a new sound guy? And I kind of wanted to shake them and be like, that's not important, right? And so I write this, um, I write this book I'm sorry, I write this sermon and I find that people keep coming up to me afterwards and saying like, you know, this really resonated with me. I'm lonely, nobody's talking about it um, and we should be talking about it more. And so then the next year or about six months later, um, I had a friend who was putting together these called Eli Talks, which are basically Jewish TED Talks. Jews have like their own version of everything, right? So we've got TED Talks and this is an Eli talk. And I decided, you know what, the sermon worked well, so I would give one. And so, you know, these 12 minute talks where you're sitting there giving presentations. Um, and uh, the editor in chief of a Jewish publishing house saw it and said, you know, would you be interested in turning in a book? Uh, by then I'd already met Ayala and I was on the path to getting married again. But I tapped into that piece of myself that was really feeling incredibly lonely those years before when I was getting divorced and said, you know, like, I think I can do this. And so I put in a proposal and ended up writing the book. Those are always the scariest sermons to write or talks to give, the ones that we need to hear, even though they're so often the most meaningful. One of the things that I was really struck by is the distinction that you draw between loneliness and being alone. Can you um, expand upon that difference? Absolutely. So look, being alone doesn't cause loneliness and being with people doesn't cure loneliness. They're different, right? So you can think about the fact that, um, and I'll put myself on gallery view so I can see the people who are here. Um, raise your hand if you've ever felt lonely in a really crowded place, let's say like on a train or at a party, something like that, right? Okay, pretty much everybody. Raise your hand if you've ever felt that peace in solitude. Maybe you were out on a hike or in the wilderness in some way. So they, you, th that proves that they're not connected to one another. Um, what matters actually um, is, are you being seen in the moment? So mm -hmm. let's take, for example, um, the idea of being out in wilderness. Sometimes you can feel whole, you can feel at peace. And Rebbe Nachman of Bratzlav, who was like a very famous rabbi from a couple hundred years ago, he used to go out into the wilderness and he used to do this thing called heat vodadut, where he would go and he would kind of shout and talk to God. And because God was around him, even though he was alone, he felt heard and felt better, right? Henry David Thoreau called, uh, called solitude his greatest companion. And then on the flip side, right, the problem with being around a lot of people 
that are not meaningful relationships is that proximity to people can cause you to feel that you're near people who can help you without actually having them see you. So I think it's worthwhile to just pause real quick and to give a, like a definition of what loneliness is, right? Loneliness is the yearning for another person, for real connection, but it's caused by the space that exists between the people who are in your life who know you for you and you yourself. So like to give you an example from that, um, from that period in my life where I was getting divorced, right? The true me was a me that was broken, that was hurting, that like needed to, that needed people to know that I was getting divorced. Everybody else in my life, because it was a secret and I was honoring the secret for my ex-wife, right? Everybody else in my life knew me as something else. They didn't know me as the full me, which was this broken, pained, hurting person in that moment. And what it created was this gulf between me and every single person that existed in my life. And because that gulf was so big, I wasn't able to bridge it. And I felt lonely in the space between me and the other people. So what does that mean? That means you move to a new place. You walk around Times Square. Let's say you move to New York City. You don't have any friends. You're around all these people. You're being teased by these people, right? Because they could see you for you, but none of them actually do. And so if you, for example, go to church, pray, no one says hello to you. You stand there. I imagine you do what we do in the Jewish tradition and you have like cookies and coffee and stuff like that afterwards, right? Nobody comes up to you and says, hello, you're being teased by all of those people. And you see yourself as funny and lovable and thoughtful and friendly and gregarious and all the things that you know yourself to be. Not one person in that community sees you that way because they haven't gotten a chance to get to know you. And that's what causes you to feel lonely. Mm. That's so powerful. Yeah, each and every one of us has so many dimensions to ourself. And I found it very helpful how you distinguished between what you called um, the majestic person and the covenantal person. Can you describe what you meant by that? Yeah, so there's a very famous Jewish philosopher. His name is um, Joseph Soloveitchik. And he realizes that there's a problem in the Bible. And I'm sure many of you have noticed this too. Humans are created twice, right? Humans are created first in Genesis chapter one, when God just, you know, makes all of the, the world and creates light and dark and the sun and the moon and the earth and the sky. And then on the sixth day, God makes humans and says, you know, rule over the world and we're creating God's image and all of that, right? But the humans don't have a character. God just creates humans. And then in Genesis chapter two, you notice that God once again takes the earth from the four corners of the world, puts it together, molds it into a person and breathes life into it. So humans are actually created twice. And so he uses that paradigm to say that actually each of the different ways that God relates to this human in chapter one and chapter two are very different. In chapter one, God says to the human, look, rule over the earth, conquer the earth. And so Soloveitchik calls that the majestic man. And so if that part of your character is going to do well, you're going to do exactly what God tells you to do. You're going to build the tallest buildings. You're going to, um, you're going to have successful nonprofits that you start. You're going to be a, a killer rabbi. Like you're going to do all of that stuff, right? However, in the second story, that story is the story where God's command is actually not to like rule over the world, but actually to find companionship. And so the first thing that God calls not good in the whole Torah appears in the creation of humanity in the second story in Genesis chapter two. Everything's good. Light is good. Sun is good. Moon is good. Stars are good. Everything is tov. Everything is good. If you read Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two is the first time something's not good. It is not good that a human should be alone. And so what does God do? God creates as an Ezer Kenegdo, as like a, you know, as a companion, as an opposite, as a bolster to the character of Adam. And so that human is very different than the first. That's the human that yearns for connection, yearns for connection with Eve, yearns for connection with God. And so that human is not placated by, let's say, being successful in the world. That human is placated by being seen 
or fed by being seen. And so the problem is that we often attack loneliness by dealing with the majestic man part of ourselves. If only we can get a hundred people on Zoom, it feels like we're bringing people together. But actually, unfortunately, I hope that you learn something from tonight, but I don't think tonight is gonna help you feel any more seen. And so this program is really important for things like the majestic man. You're going to learn more. You're going to grow, but you got to sit down and you got to talk to people and you got to have people love you. And you have to feel heard in order to feed that covenantal part of your souls, which is the actual antidote to loneliness. Hmm. And do you see these two dimensions existing simultaneously, the majestic and the covenantal often with, um, thinkers like Father Richard Rohr in the, in the Christian tradition. Um, they speak about the stages of life, particularly before 45, 50, as a sort of building up of the ego, that there has to be the phase of building up the ego in order for the ego to be released and to let go. And, and the second half of life, which is often framed as more spiritual, do you see these as, as linear or, or are they existing simultaneously? totally simultaneously, right? Look, you can have really successful CEOs who feel loved, right? And at the same time, you could have really successful CEOs who feel completely lonely because everybody treats them, you know, like differently, you know, like they walk into a room and people stop telling the jokes that they're telling because like, uh oh, the boss is here, right? And so you can be a very successful person and still feel very lonely. You can also be somebody who doesn't check the boxes but feels totally content with their life because they've got people who love them. And like, unfortunately that's less and less. Um, I, I saw a statistic that in the 1970s, and this is a statistic about men. In the 1970s, the average man had around four or five different people that were outside of their family that they could confide in, right? Um, in the 90s, that drops down to two. About like 10 years ago, that dropped down closer to one between two and one, and now we're at 0.8. The average man has 0.8 people outside of their family for which they can confide in. And that, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. I would say um, it has to do with our over-reliance on technology as a way to connect. It, it deals with the breakdowns of institutions. That's the bowling alone phenomenon, right? The idea that Robert Putnam wrote about this in the early 2000s. More people are, were bowling than ever, but less people were, were joining bowling leagues than ever, right? More people are engaged in spirituality than ever, like this is the world that we exist in and they're doing yoga and things like that, but less people are joining communities of spirituality, like joining churches. Um, and so like we moved from an we society to an I society, which itself is very alienating. And so there, there's a number of reasons why we ended up in the place that we are, but we're, we're in a crisis of loneliness right now that's only being exacerbated by COVID. Absolutely. And as you point out, it is so ironic when they're um, on the social media platforms. You know, many of us have thousands of friends, some of which we barely even know, but there is just that lingering sense of loneliness that is so pervasive. And yet you say that the loneliest being is God. Can you say more about that? So, so I, I'm not sure if I actually, uh, chapter five is, is about is about God as a lonely being. And the way the book is structured is that, um, is that the beginning of the book is about kind of diagnosing loneliness. And it goes through specific kinds of lonelinesses, right? The loneliness of divorce, the loneliness of being single, the loneliness of being in a marriage that's not great, the loneliness of being sick, the loneliness of being the CEO, right? The middle part of the book, which is the more philosophical, deals with God as lonely and the emblematic loneliness of the Jewish people. And then the end is the self-help part. So like, what do we do about it? Um, I'm not sure my conception of God is as a character, but I definitely think that the that that if you read the Jewish tradition, you can read a strain of the Jewish tradition that sees God as incredibly lonely. Um, and if you think about it, right, if you read the history of the Bible, people are consistently disappointing God, right? God creates humanity. And what does humanity do? They kind of run away. They become evil. God has to bring a flood in the age of Noah. Then they start building a tower up to God and God has to somehow scatter them because God can't be too close to them. Um, and then, you know, God frees the people. And what's the first thing that the people do? 
the people turn to idolatry and they build a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. God has to destroy God's own house, right? The first and the second temple um, because of the debauchery and the idolatry of the people that like you kind of watch as at least the biblical character of God yearns for connection with the people only to disapp be disappointed over and over and over again as the people turn to other means. And so you can really find in the story of God's loneliness, lots of resonance to our own stories of loneliness too, of reaching out and being rebuffed um, at, at times when we want connection. Mm. I found one of the most challenging parts of your book when you spoke about how humanity really has to cultivate the capacity to connect with God. Um, could, would you ever mind just lifting up that beautiful um, part of the book where you, I'm not sure if it was Maimonides or Rabbi um, um, Sachs who talks about standing in the rain and the bucket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's Rabbi Jonathan Sachs playing off of Maimonides. He's a little bit creatively misreading Maimonides, which by the way, you should know the guy that I'm quoting right now, the rabbi, he passed away this week. And he's, if, if you ever want to read just like, the greatest contemporary theologian in Judaism right now that's like accessible to everybody that isn't like using code words that are really hard, like in lots of Hebrew, it's Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. So worth reading. And I'm actually in the middle of his book, Morality, right now, which is his book that came out like two months ago. Um, and uh, definitely worth reading that. Um, so, um, and he, by the way, has a chapter on loneliness. But he basically says, look, prayer is never meant to change God's mind. Um, in part, Maimonides be believes that God doesn't change. God, Maimonides was an Aristotelian. And so, um, and so you can kind of think about it like um, God is con consistently pouring forth blessing, right? And so what does prayer do? The act of prayer doesn't change God. The act of prayer changes you. And he likens um, the act of prayer to actually like weaving a basket or something like that, creating a vessel. And so you've got these blessings pouring forth from God into this world. And what are you doing? As you pray, you're weaving your basket so that you can come out and you can catch the blessing or you're building your vessel so you can catch the rain, whatever metaphor you're using. And so prayer is not meant to be um, like transactional between you and God. It's meant to be transformational within yourself. That as you pray, as you engage in religious practice, you're somehow becoming a different kind of person whose antenna is more up to be able to see the holiness around you and hopefully connect more to God. They, they, I have a friend who uses this example. They actually talk about Israel with it, but, but it's the same in this way. Like they say, look, like when you walk around Israel, and I don't know if you've been in Israel before, um, it's not that, it's not that um, like God is any more present in Israel. It's just that like you got, like, you got full service you got five bars of five of like of God G or whatever, you know, like you're more plugged in. And so that's what prayer does. Like prayer creates more bars for you. You're more plugged in to be able to access the God that's all around you. Yeah. I love your quote. Uh, where is God wherever you let God in? Yes. Is that, is that you? That's the Kutzka Rebbe from the, from okay. the <laughs> I wish I could say that I'm a mental of Kutzka, but it's not, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's so succinct and so true. And the connection to God and you, and you name it as a vertical connection is so essential. And yet the horizontal connection between just people um, as a remedy for loneliness is, is also so important. And yet, you do speak about some of the pitfalls um, that can happen when we're trying to help one another. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, so I, I, had a, I had a teacher that gave me four principles for how to do pastoral care. And, the, and I'll tell you what the four principles are. Um, and the, fir the first principle is do no harm, right? The second principle is walk with them a little bit in their suffering. The third is help them tell their story. And the fourth principle is give them a catharsis. It might, it's usually like a kind of, it's usually a prayer at the end of like your pastoral encounter or a wish for them or something. And, and by the way, like, just cause that's my philosophy when I do pastoral care, if I were to walk into a hospital room or something like that, that doesn't mean that that can't be a really helpful model for you in your friendship. So the first thing is do no harm. Um, and it, by the way, it's really easy to do harm. It's especially theological harm. 
So I actually was doing a session with some teenagers and we were brainstorming, like, what are some problematic stuff that you've heard? And, um, and you know, if it wasn't hard to unmute and unmute, I probably would ask people to like, be able to, to say, you know, what some of those things are now, you know, like, I'll give you an example, you know, your loved one is in a better place now. Well, well better place. Like, it was a pretty good place where they were right now. God loved them so much that God took them. They must have done something. You must have done something to deserve the cancer that you got, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like uh, another one might be um, um, God only gives you so much, Only God only gives you enough that you can handle. Well, like I wish I was less strong because then I wouldn't be dealing with this, right? These platitudes might seem helpful, but they actually aren't. And even if it's your own theology, sometimes it's best when caring for a loved one to keep your own theology to yourself and just listen and be present with them. Because actually that can do more harm than good if you start overreaching um, and trying to say things that, you know, that you have no business saying about the universe because you don't know it. You might believe it, but you don't know it. Um, and, and because I'm on this already, the other two pieces besides the catharsis that are really helpful is to help them tell their story and sit with them a little bit in their suffering, right? So help them tell their story means that, um, we have like these amorphous feelings, but it's very hard to label what these feelings are. I've got a two-year-old right now and I'm trying to teach the two-year-old to use his words, right? He whines. What I want him to say is like, I want you to go and get me X, but he won't do that. He'll just whine and it'll have to figure out kind of what he wants. Well, there's a little bit of that that happens emotionally to us, even as we get older. And it takes a lot of, of therapy to figure out what the oh feeling is inside of us, right? And so one of the things as you hear people speak is if you can label something, they can own it. And so if you say it kind of sounds like you're feeling trapped by this, or it sounds like you're feeling lonely, or what I'm hearing you say is that you're really frustrated. If you're wrong, they're just going to say to you, not that, and then they'll like do their best to label whatever the thing is that they're actually feeling. But they definitely um, like sometimes need your help as an outside voice to give them a control over their feeling and words create control. And the other thing is that you can't solve people's problem, but being present with them is what matters the most. And so if they're crabby, if they're upset, knowing that you're not running away, but you're letting them cry, you're letting them be in a bad mood and you're not going anywhere when they're doing that actually is a really great gift that you can give to somebody. Absolutely. And the importance of just having someone to be present, to hold grieving, especially within, I mean, I just think about churches, there can be this expectation that it has to be happy, happy, joy, joy all the time. When grief is such a powerful emotion and there's so much to be found in going through that process. One of the phrases that you use is the soul is anti-fragile. What do you mean by that? So um, there's a there's a book called Anti-Fragile by Talib I'm trying to remember his last name. He also wrote like the Black Swan. He, he's actually a he's a very famous um, economist. Um, and one of the things that the book is about is, is it's about the idea that um, economic systems um, sometimes um, get stronger when they are broken. And so you can think of it like a bone, right? As long as a bone heals correctly, most of the time when you break a bone the merging of the bone back together, that area doesn't tend to re-break unless you don't do a good job setting it because it's stronger once it breaks. Um, And by the way, that's the way you build muscle, right? You break down muscle, that's what being sore is, and then you get stronger in the process. And so actually like if you do mourning well, if you do healing well from from an emotional standpoint, you will actually find that you grow stronger through the process. Our souls are anti-fragile, but you have to give yourself the space to be broken in order to build it back up. So if you are lonely and you push that down and you don't talk about it and you're sad and you push it down and you don't talk about it, what's gonna happen is it's gonna come out in other ways and it's gonna be like a bone that doesn't get set right. But if you allow yourself to lean into those feelings, if you process them with people, if you reach out to others and you bear your soul to them, 
you will get stronger in the process. And especially now during COVID, there's such a collective grief. There's everyone has their COVID story. The wedding that didn't happen, somebody who died that wasn't able to have a proper funeral. Um, we're all so connected in that grief. Um, one of the things that I found very enriching were all the examples that you lift up throughout um, Jewish tradition to help us make sense of um, these moments in our lives. And I'm wondering, is there a story that you feel like can um, is especially, especially applicable to our time of COVID? Yes, 100%. So the, when I speak about each kind of loneliness, I pick a biblical character to unpack. Um, and the biblical character that I unpack for the loneliness of sickness is a character called King Uzziah. Now he's like a very minor character, but what happens is there's seven people in the, in the Bible that get leprosy in the Old Testament, not the New Testament. There's some more in the New Testament. Um, and they all get leprosy for different reasons. Miriam, for example, gets leprosy because she badmouths her brother Moses, um, you know, and, and she gets leprosy. But King Uzziah gets leprosy in part, I think, because of like a kind of a brazen arrogance, right? He like wants to be the priest. He like kind of walks into the holiest part of the temple and like does the sacrifices as the priests are trailing behind him being like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And what happens is he is immediately stricken on his forehead with leprosy and he can't be the king anymore. He basically gets deposed as the king, a new king arises and he gets locked in the tower for the rest of his time. And that a little bit is um, like the metaphor of what sickness is, right? It's this idea that um, I think Susan Sontag famously starts her book um, about cancer and AIDS, where, uh, sorry, tuberculosis and AIDS, where she's comparing the two, that like that everybody is in, everybody can be in two lands, the land of the, uh, the land of the well and the land of the sick. And that suddenly you find yourself in the land of the sick and it's got different rules. It's worth reading her book. Um, trying to remember what the name of the book is. Um, but, but that's what happens immediately to him, right? He has this forced migration to the land of the sick and then people stop, stop treating him like the king that he is and instead relate to him through his sickness. Illness is metaphor. Thank you for those who, thank you for the person who wrote that in. Um, and start, start relating to him as like the sick individual that he is, he's locked in the tower. In fact, when he dies, he doesn't get buried with the kings. He gets buried in the outskirts of town. And this idea of like being defined by an illness or by a sickness is really challenging. Like the primary way that we are relating to other people through this, especially if we're seeing them in person, is through the lens of the fear that either we're gonna give them COVID or they have COVID they lose their sense of self. And right, if loneliness is lost, if loneliness is caused by the space that exists between the person that you know yourself to be and the people in your life that see you this way, if suddenly they stop seeing me as Mark and John as John and Anne as Anne, and they start seeing John as a vector for an illness and Anne as a potential like person who's gonna get it, right? You lose your sense of self, your disease takes over and you feel lonely in that process. Um, now there's a lot of other reasons that you're lonely through COVID, but I would say that like, that's a big reason is that we, we begin to embody the disease instead of the person that we know ourselves to be. And that's a bad place to be. And that's always been the case with sickness, right? Um, uh, like I, I've definitely talked to older congregants, for example, who like, you know, come into a doctor and the doctor relates them to relates, relates to them via their illness as opposed to themselves. And because they're ill, they talk to like their children, their adult children, instead of talking to them. Um, but I think society is beginning to do that with everybody because of the fear of this illness. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm especially mindful um, of the elderly that are having to be shut in um, during this time. You lift up Moses as a symbol for some of the wisdom that we can um, learn um, growing old. Can you say a little bit more about Moses' story? Yeah, so look, you know, you know Moses throughout the whole book of Exodus, 
and then into Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy, right? And what Deuteronomy is, for those who haven't read it in a while, is um, basically Moses' last will and testament. He finds out in the book of Numbers, sorry, you're not going to enter the promised land. You've led the people for 40 years in the desert, but you're done. We're moving on without you. And he becomes, in a way, irrelevant. He actually is standing in the way of the people. And so the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' kind of swan song, right? It's his last, um, his last speech to them saying, before I leave you, here's all the final lessons I want you to know, because you're about to go on without me and be led by my disciple Joshua. But that story of wanting to continue, of feeling like the world is leaving, um, leaving you behind, of, of being told explicitly in the Torah, but implicitly by society we're talking now, is uh, like that, that you no longer have something to offer us because, uh, because that you're nearing the end of your life is unfortunately a message that we give to people who are older. And right, if somebody, let's say, has a whole lifetime of experience that matters but yet nobody asked them to share it, that again creates the gulf between the person you know yourself to be and the people in your life who know you that way. And if you're older, it's exacerbated by the fact that you've probably lost a lot of people, especially if you really make it to an older age, that knew you in your childhood, um, that know you fully as you. And so like the longer that you live, the less likely there are that people know you in your fullest way which causes you to be incredibly lonely. It's incredible just the way that um, the people and the wisdom that we need the most are so often ignored. Um, I had a a roommate from Ghana and he would come in from the rat race of New York City and he would come in saying, this world is upside down, this world is upside down. And to me, the, the treatment of our elders is one of the clearest examples um, and the way that we don't gain that wisdom. Um, final question, and this is an invitation to please put your questions for Rabbi Katz into the chat. This has been an incredibly rich discussion already. Um, first, actually, quick question. How old were you when you wrote this? Uh, 31, I think, or 32, something like that. I, I told uh, Rabbi Katz earlier that as I'm reading this, I'm like, this guy must be like 70 years old. Just the wisdom, the wisdom that's in this book is just, it's magnificent and it's so rich. And um, he draws on so many different sources and weaves it together so beautifully. So um, you don't have to say it. I'll definitely say it. Please pick it up. The Heart of Loneliness, it's on Amazon. It's a beautiful read and it's deeply enriching, as I'm sure you all can already tell now. Um, But the final question is, you published this book in 2016, 31 years old. If you, if there was going to be another edition, is there a part of the book that you would like to expand on? Is there a part that you'd like to deepen? Is there anything that you would change um, that you've written? How have you grown since um, this book was first published? Um, So first of all, that definition that I gave of loneliness about the gulf between who you are and the people in your life to see you, I actually came to that through the through like a couple book talks when the book came out. So if I were to um, if I were to definitely reissue the book, I think I would talk more about that gulf because I think that that's the salient piece. Um, and so um, I don't you know I, I take for granted that people that that people kind of get get it from seeing the book, but um, but I would be very explicit about that. Um, mm. And I think I would talk a little bit more about um, the causes of loneliness. I touch on them, but I'm very brief, like social media, the movement from I to we, um, you know, the, uh, the, the separation of like the breaking up of families so that people live across the country from their loved ones. But I think I would spend a little bit more time unpacking those pieces because if you understand why loneliness exists, I think you can do a better job of, of treating it. Um, and and I, I skirt over those things in the book. Right. Well, thank you so much for 
just sharing what you have already. I think most of us are feeling very, very drawn to learn more and go deeper uh, into what you've written. Um, there is one comment that has been made and that is from the Reverend Heather Cherry. So Heather, if you would like to um, unmute yourself, uh, I know you put it in the everyone chat, but you can also share a little bit about what you mean by what you wrote. Well, um, I live in an older community and um, we joke about it a lot, but it seems we, we there's a feeling that uh, when we have lost our mates, when our husbands have passed away, especially, our children treat us differently, um, as if we have nothing to offer anymore. Um, and as I say, we joke about it, but it's a very real, real feeling uh, when you when you talk with people. Uh, you know that there's a lot to it, uh, more than just a joke. Um, and a, a feeling of um, no one will ever care for you the same way as the person you've lost. And that's, that's a loneliness uh, in the midst of, of being with people. Yeah. Anyone else have a question or a comment or a reflection for Rabbi Katz or just for the, for the group in general? I was really struck by the, the comment you were making about uh, or the part, of, the part of the conversation you were saying about God being lonely. I guess I never thought about that. And that, that sort of something about that is, is deeply troubling, but it actually makes sense if you think about it, right? Because, I mean, if, even if you sort of like pose that in sort of very orthodox terms, right? God has no equal or, um, you know, God is always trying to know us. I mean, it's, there's, there's, a, there's this weird sort of like, cosmic desperation in it right and um and that that sort of has implications not just for the the nature of god but for the cosmos itself right and there's it i, I sort of sense a, a a loneliness to creation right it's not just a human affair uh, it, it occurs to me right but and I, i'm sort of curious what you think about that idea right this is does loneliness is loneliness something that it, that's experienced by the non-human and the more than human world and if so what's the origin of that what does that mean about about god i don't know it's, i don't know if that's a really well articulated question but maybe there's something there you can bounce off of yeah so so the strain of judaism that tends to view god as lonely is the hasidic strain of judaism um and you know there's like a famous hasidic story of like of a little girl who like is playing hide and seek and she hides too well and her friends can't find her and she sits there waiting for her friends. And by then they've given up and gone inside and then, you know, it gets dark. She's like still waiting. And so she finally comes out and she runs into her grandfather and starts bawling and saying like, grandpa, grandpa, I hid and no one came to find me. I hid and no one came to find me. And um, her grandfather says, you know, that's how God feels, right? So it's a very Hasidic way of seeing things. Um, what I'll say um, is um, I, I think it's okay to have license to play around with what attributes God has, because at least from a Jewish point of view, we are told that we are created B'Tselem Elohim, right, in the image of God. That's um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And one of the things that's challenging about that and has been part of the Jewish discourse, at least, for 3,000 years, is, well, what does it mean to be created in God's image? And so pretty much the way that um, it's almost become a cliche if you read, like, psychological or sociological literature to say, like, humans are the only animals who blank, right? And I'm sure, like, we could, like, play that game. Humans are the only animals who, um, you know, who can reason. Humans are the only animals who... X laugh. or animals. what? <laughs> Who laugh? Who laugh? Yeah, right. Um, like whatever it is, and so and so that game is actually at the core of trying to figure out what being created in God's image is, because we've got the animal world and then we've got the cosmic world, and somehow there has to be a bridge 
between the animal world and the cosmic world where humans are the only ones who get this gift of being created in God's image. So Maimonides says it's rationality, right? It's sechel in Hebrew. And that's what's being created in God's image. And someone else says, you know what? No, it's, it's compassion. Human beings are the only animals that have true compassion. And that's what it means to be created in God's image. And by the way, like plenty of evolutionary biologists can like, um, you know, poke holes in all of these different things, but that's part of the movement. So the question is like, well, well, is loneliness or is sadness or is yearning for companionship, is that an animal trait or is that something innate to human beings? And if it's innate to human beings, then you can ascribe it to God too. Because if God is the sum of everything, God's got to be the sum of all the good stuff, but also all that hard, painful stuff too. And so there's a strain of Judaism, not all of Judaism, but a strain of Judaism that is called anthropopathic, which means not anthropomorphic, not God that has human form, arms, legs, eyes, mouth, but anthropopathic, God that shares emotion with humans. Not everybody believes that, but the Hasidic strain at least really leans into that as a way to say, well, at least if we feel that way, I'm sorry, at least if God feels that way, it gives us a license to feel that way too. Yeah, that sounds like, I mean, I don't know a lot about it. Maybe you can, is, it, is, there, is there a Kabbalistic element in, involved in that sort of thing that you're talking about as well? Totally, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. There's a, another question um, from Nate Nakao. So Nate, if you'd like to unmute yourself and share your, your, uh, your question. Um, I think now it's, it's more of a, a comment. Uh, I was struck by the imagery um, and maybe you could comment a little bit more, but the, the idea of that, that gulf that you were mentioning um, and how loneliness can be perceived as a gulf. I'm um, thinking in terms of my own experience over time of transitioning from uh, more conservative to more um, uh, progressive and social justice minded uh, faith and religious environments and still trying to maintain relationships with people who are inside of those um, conservative circles and that loneliness um, manifesting as uh, a gulf. I don't know, I, 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 was, I was very struck by that imagery. Um, it, uh, it, it, it gave some, some life and, and meaning to, to some feelings that I had had. I mean, let's take your specific example and let's unpack that for a second, right? Um, I think that we, um, we pretty much all begin to label people based on pieces of their own identity. Um, and so one way to do this is to look at somebody, and this is something that we do unfortunately all the time, and we say like, oh, that person's a Republican, oh, that person's a Democrat, right? And the truth is like, it's okay to disagree with somebody, but you are more than your political beliefs. And so the gulf happens when people only relate to you as that and they write you off, they actually cancel you. Cancel culture is the worst culprit of this. They cancel you based on a thing you did or a thing you believe, as opposed to a person that you are, which is much bigger than that, right? And so if, if, you, lose a, if you lose friendships over your political belief, let's say, mm -hmm. what's gonna happen to that is that you're gonna begin to realize that people only see you based on who you vote for or even what your values are because who you vote for matters because it shows who your values are, what your values are. But actually like I am more than my values even though my values make me up. And if people can't get past that, that's a problem and that's gonna cause me to feel incredibly lonely. Uh, Gail. Uh, is on the Zoom and Gail has a question. So you can unmute yourself and ask the question. Gail, are you there? You Wait. might be muted. Am I? Am I? Yeah, I can hear you. Yep. Okay, perfect. Sorry, my microphone was turned down. Um, the statistic that you gave earlier on there being five people that that used to men used to have to confide in, and then it went down to like one in the '90s or two in the '90s, and then it was like now it's at like zero point eight. Is that a, spe a statistic specifically or specific to both genders, or is it more of a male statistic? Like, is there a big discrepancy between how men and women, like the amount of loneliness there? I'm just kind of wondering about the bigger picture on how that but everybody's in a decline uh, but yeah. women are women are tend to do a little bit better on those kinds of measures um and i don't think it's innate to 
to to like you know to your genes or anything like that i think it's societal i think like men are taught not to have these close relationships and women are taught that it's okay to have these close ships and it's encouraged to have these clips like you can even see it like we have we have our a friend of ours was was joking about um like like we we were talking to um to a couple that has a kid that's like in fifth grade right now and she spends so much more time with her friends, like on um, like FaceTime and things like that, you know, talking to them, like they leave their phones on and they're hanging out with each other. Like a fifth grade boy just isn't gonna do that. Um, and, uh, and that unfortunately teaches men to reach out less. Um, it's, um, if you talk to young men when they, you know, like people my age, like, who moved to new places. It's like, it's harder for men to make friends with other men than it is for women to make friends with other women on the whole when they move to a place because men aren't taught that skill set about making new friends in the same way that I think women are. Um, and so it's, it's a, I'm, I'm generalizing now, but it, I think it's worse in our society for men. Um, although women are in a decline in the same way men are. Um, it's holistic. like the movement from the we to I, the social media, women are feeling lonely at much higher rates than they used to. Um, and, uh, and some women are feeling more lonely than some men are. Um, and just because, by the way, the statistic of how many close people you have in your life doesn't always correlate to loneliness. The best way that I can say it is that some of us um, stub our toe and like scream and it hurts so much. And some of us stub our toe and it doesn't hurt that much, right? We each have different pain tolerances. Well, loneliness is like physical pain. You want physical pain because it makes you move your hand away from a fire when you get too close. You want loneliness from an evolutionary standpoint because it means that you're less likely to be out in the wilderness by yourself and to get eaten by a bear because you feel lonely. And then you go and you find some, you find like your crew who's gonna keep you safe right? And different people have different thresholds for loneliness. And so um, I don't know, like, whether women have higher thresholds or men have higher thresholds. Like, I don't know if that's a thing. What I do know is that society has taught women to, um, to socialize in a way that they don't always teach men to socialize. Cool. There was something else you said I wanted to ask you about. We were talking about how words create a control over your feelings and being able to label them. And I found that really interesting, like just in terms of helping people when you come alongside of them. And I think you were uh, discussing, you know, maybe throwing out suggestions. Like I, what I hear from you is as a way to get people to label them. Do you have any more tricks or thoughts on how to get people to be able to define or, um, I just, I thought that was just such a, an interesting idea of how words create a control over your feelings and how important it was to be able to name them and to label them. And I think if, if in society, people aren't you know, tying into the last question, don't have people they can talk to, they're probably not very skilled in being able to label either how they're feeling. I was just wondering if you had anything else to, to share on how to get people to, to define what's up. Yeah. I mean, from a religious standpoint, right? What does God do to create the world? God speaks and God said, let there be light. So like the act of speaking creates worlds. Um, and, um, um, and in the book, I talk about a few other like kind of like teachings in Judaism about the power of speech and what it means to, to, to speak. But catharsis comes when you're able to, when you're able to say what's going on for you. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, look, there are, there are, there are, there are ways in which you want to be seen. And so if somebody labels what you're feeling correctly, that actually allows you to be seen in that feeling. So it sounds like you're feeling really trapped right now. Like, oh my gosh, someone understands me. And the gulf between the person you know yourself to be and other people shrink because someone got it right. As opposed to someone just listening to you where you don't know if they actually are understanding it. The other thing is that like, it gives you a sense of like what to do to, to deal with it, right? Like you can't read a self-help book, unfortunately, on the problem unless you know what that problem is. And so like, you can then begin to say like, you now have terms you can Google. How do I deal with um, anxiety? How, I, how do I deal with loneliness? How do I deal with feeling trapped? And you can begin to understand that like there are other people who have been there and who have thought about this. And, um, and you can realize that you're not alone in that. 
We have um, one last question, but I just wanted to say something that made, made me think of what you, what you just said, uh, Rabbi Mark. Uh, that great sage, Mr. Rogers, and that's Mr. Fred Rogers, although we've got a couple of great Rogers sages on the screen right now, um, said to children, if you can mention it, you can manage it. And I think that is one of the most profound uh, uh, coping skills to give a child. If you can mention it, if you can talk about it, you can manage it. And it's a you know, wonderful way of encouraging children to give words to their feelings so that they can come up with a strategy or ask for help. Um, that's a crucial part. Our, our final question, because we're almost at the end of our time, um, is going to be uh, from Jose. So Jose, please feel free to unmute yourself and share your question. Sure, so I, I wrote, you know, in this environment of isolation, divisiveness, fear, I find that the greatest impact of loneliness is in the context of my relationship with God. Um, my sense is that he is absent, that he has abandoned, that he is not listening. And I just, I just don't know if I'm alone in that. You know, like he either, you know, I, I log on the Zoom call and he's not there or he's working from home and he's not listening. And it, that is a terrible loneliness. And I, I, I just don't think I'm alone in that. You know, um, I, like I, I feel like I'm a Spaniard. And so for, for me, uh, uh, mystics like Nachmanides, like Maimonides, like Moses de Leon, like Teresa Vavila, like John de they had these ephemeral transient moments where they were connected in a way that I can barely fathom. But I felt that and now that it's gone. We're in some crazy place that makes him feel absent. Am I am I crazy? No. I need therapy. <laughs> no, you, you are you are not. Look, there are going to be your life is going to be punctuated by moments where God is fully present for you and where God is very absent for you. And that unfortunately um, is a reality of the world. Um, and I find more often than not, God is absent for me than present. Um, I still pray because there's advantages to praying, right? Prayer is catharsis, is getting stuff off your chest. Prayer, the difference between my kind of prayer and the prayer of most of the people on this uh, call is that Jewish prayer tends to be very, very scripted in a way that that Protestant prayer is not. So, um, but, so that actually has advantages because it reminds me of universal themes that I often forget. Um, it, it gives a script to my life and a, and a, and a kind of like timetable to follow. And so like, even when God is absent, there's advantages to religious practice. Um, but I find more often than not, I feel Jose, like you feel right now. Um, what I would say is that like your goal, um, and you can think of it like almost playing the stock market, right? Is in order to deal with loneliness, you have to diversify your portfolio, right? God is a tool that you need to feel seen, but so are other people, right? So is a connection to your history and your past where you can open up the Bible and you can read about different um, characters that might be feeling the same way that you're feeling, right? Um, so is um, learning to love yourself, um, I once heard it said that like the challenge of meditating is that you're locked in a phone booth with a crazy person and, uh, and a, a megaphone, right? You have to learn to love to crawl into that, um, that, that phone booth with them. Because like if you're left alone on a Friday night and you don't have, um, and you don't have a love for yourself, um, then you're going to be lonely. But if you love yourself, you've got a companion with you, right, on Friday night. If you've got a sense of, you know, of purpose in your life, you volunteer somewhere or like, or you have a career that's really fulfilling. Um, and then if people are failing you, if God is failing you, you can lean into at least feeling like you're making a difference, right? So that the passion that you have is manifest. That's a certain way of being seen. And so the goal is to try to create a wide enough portfolio out there so that at moments when people fail you, at moments when God disappears, you can lean into those other things until those pieces of yourself come back. Thank you so much. This has really been an amazing, amazingly rich and deep conversation. Thank you everyone who offered a question. We're gonna close out the questions now as it's almost time for us to close out the evening. Just wanna thank everyone uh, for the depth of sharing. Uh, truly, truly sacred. 
and want to thank Rabbi Mark for all that you have offered. It has been thought-provoking, challenging, and deeply nourishing. Thanks for listening to the Brew Theology Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please share it with your friends. And if you're a real fan of the show, head over to iTunes and give us a review over there. By the way, five-star ratings get extra credit. You can support the interfaith work that Brew Theology is doing by heading over to brewtheology.org and clicking Donate. You can give a one-time gift through PayPal or, for as little as just a dollar a month, become a patron supporter of Brew Theology on Patreon. And if you haven't already, go ahead and follow us on social media. We're at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram and at Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. Thanks again for tuning in and come back next time when Ryan and Janelle will throw out a better catchphrase at the end of the show than I can. Cheers, everyone.